Welcome to Life U 2021 through 2022. In this season of change and challenge, the Spirit is calling us to explore four life-giving practices, fervent prayer and worship, tending to scripture, telling our faith stories, and serving the neighbor with courage and generosity. We hope that you will join us on Wednesday evenings for a meal, a dynamic TED-style talk, and opportunities for conversation. For more information, visit our website at www.standrews.org forward slash life you. And now you'll have an opportunity to hear last week's talk. Enjoy the podcast. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, hello and greetings from Durham. Uh, it's good to be with you. I wish, of course, we were together uh, in the flesh, not just in spirit, but uh, at least Zoom allows us to do the latter. I'm thankful to Stephanie Anderson, of course, for inviting me to uh, be with you and also thankful to Dr. Michael Chan, my former student, but longtime colleague, peer, and uh, my own teacher in a number of ways, truth be told, for uh, his, uh, his introduction, which I, in truth I couldn't hear but I, he assured me he lied uh, strongly in my favor. So I appreciate whenever anyone lies uh, very strongly in my favor. So uh, it's great to be with you. And um, it's a pleasure actually to uh, be with you on this first night of attending to scripture or tending to scripture faithfully and fruitfully. Um, so I wanna share my screen off and on here. And I trust that Stephanie will tell me if it's working or not. But uh, here's the uh, first share I want to do, which is to give you a, a vision of what I want to accomplish in the, in the few minutes we have together. About 30, 40 minutes plus two hours, I think is what Stephanie said. Anyway, don't worry about the time. Uh, this is what I'd like to cover if I could. Four fours on tending to scripture faithfully and fruitfully. Now, since I'm a professor, you know, professors like to mess around with things and uh, not always do what they're told. So Stephanie asked uh, about tending to scripture. That's the, uh, the verb that's being used there, I think. Uh, but I wondered if maybe attending to scripture might also be a good verb or, or another one that we could use. And that's kind of what I'm gonna think about with you tonight is listening to scripture, uh, attending. To scripture. And uh, as Dr. Chan knows from TAing with me, um, I have come to a position pedagogically where I often talk about four things. Um, four things about any number of things that I'm trying to teach. It seems to me that five is way too many. I can't remember that many. And three is just not, not enough um, with all due respect to the Godhead. I'm waiting. That was a Trinitarian joke. Not everybody gets that one, but I think it's kind of funny. With all due respect to the Godhead, three is not enough. Four, though, is just right. So I often teach my classes four things on X, Y, or Z. It's just kind of a nice number for whatever reason. But tonight I thought, why not Why not go big? Uh, sin boldly, uh, since I'm speaking to Lutherans. Why not go for four fours? So I'm going to go with four fours tonight on tending or attending the scripture faithfully and fruitfully 
along with a little bit on the way about how one does that and why one does that. I, I hope these latter two things are, are explicit enough, but at least implicit in much of what I'm going to talk about. So you might be asking yourself, what are these fours? What's the first four? And are there really four fours? And yes, there are four fours. So let's, let's look at them together here. The first four is four on reading the Bible, four on reading bad parts of the Bible, four on reading poetry, and four Old Testament gifts. So that's my mandate. If you're keeping track at home, this is what I'm going to try to cover in my 30 minutes plus three and a half hours. And uh, we'll try to do it with some um, uh, concision. So first then, I wanna talk about four on reading the Bible. And if you're following along, you can jot these down real quickly, but I will repeat them. And I am not going to um, share anymore because I don't know about you. I don't know if you like staring at PowerPoints. Uh, you may mind stare at my messy office instead. It's, it's quite messy, but the advantage of it is it has the Lord God right there. So I don't know if you saw that, but uh, you know, who's got my back? You might be asking. <laughs> okay. Anyway, four on reading the Bible. Let's start with the first four. Four on reading the Bible. Uh, these are pretty uh, straightforward, but uh, important nevertheless. You all know them, I'm sure, but it doesn't hurt to repeat things that are important. So the four on reading the Bible are these. First and foremost, read it. Read it. It doesn't do any good for us or to us if we don't read the scripture. It's not meant to be that pretty book that's never cracked open or that really nice tome that's on the top of the bookshelf. It needs to be read for it to do its work on us. Second thing here on reading the Bible is uh, to read it slowly, read it slowly. You know, we don't get any awards for reading the Bible quickly. There are these things, you know, these Bible reading programs, you know, or the one-year Bible. Maybe you tried a one-year Bible, please, no show of hands. Uh, I've tried it, though. I've tried the one-year Bible in the past. I start on January 1, and, you know, on February 15th, I'm four months behind. I don't know how it happens. It's a time warp. I don't know. But uh, one-year Bible, it seems like a good idea. I just think I'm going to catch up this weekend. I'm going to catch up this weekend. I'm going to read eight, 80 Psalms and, you know, 400 Proverbs. It never works. Didn't work for me. It might work for you. But even if you finish the Bible in a year, good for you. Guess what? No one cares. Right? I mean, no one's going to give you an award for it. No one's going to throw you a ticker tape parade. Uh, and then you'll probably just have to read it again at some point. So read it slowly. Uh, read it slowly. My my colleague uh, Ellen Davis here at Duke Divinity School has a wonderful little statement where she says, "If you want to know the trick to reading the Bible in a transformative way, it is simply this: turn the pages slowly. Turn the pages slowly. So maybe instead of a one-year Bible, we should have like a one-year First John. Can you imagine?" One year Obadiah would probably be a little too much, um, but you know, you could get a lot out of first John. Obadiah probably take you, you know, if you really went slow with it, maybe a couple weeks at least. In any event, reading it slowly is this is kind of the equivalent of the slow food movement, chewing every morsel, making sure you're getting all the nutrition you can out of it. My favorite example of this is Bernard of Clairvaux, who preached 86 sermons on the Song of Songs. Can you imagine that? 
86 sermons on the Song of Songs. And it gets more amazing because he only got to chapter three, verse one. <laughs> I mean, really? 86 sermons on the first two chapters and one more verse. Can you imagine going to a church where you hear 86 sermons straight on the Song of Songs? You, you'd wonder, wouldn't you? Hmm. Something might not be right here. Uh, I, I might need to report this uh, to somebody. Uh, where's the nearest church adjudicatory? I, I don't know. But anyway, read it slowly. That's the second thing. Thirdly, keep reading. When we read scripture, uh, or any literature for that matter, we often hit what uh, are just gaps in the text, things the text leaves out, questions that uh, the text evokes that the author or authors have not, for whatever reason, saw fit to uh, provide or explain. Oh, early on in Genesis, right? Uh, you know, why even put that tree in the middle of the garden, right? Can't we just uh, get by without that tree? Or uh, in chapter four of Genesis, where did Cain's wife come from, right? Right. I mean, where did she come from? I mean, there's just two boys. Suddenly he's married. Um, incredible. Or, you know, what is Noah's wife's name? Things like this. We, th these are gaps in the text and uh, they slow us down. We get fascinated with them. We wonder about them. We get confused about them. We just need to keep reading. Keep reading. If the gap is important enough to be filled, then the author typically will fill it. Oftentimes, though, the author won't, which is to say that the text is not about that gap, but about what is present there that isn't gap. So keep reading. And the third thing, lastly, is reread, reread. Even if you bust through the Bible in a year, good for you. It, I, I'll come throw you a ticker tape parade if no one else will. But guess what? You just have to read it again. It's just there to be tended to or attended to throughout the course of a Christian life. Um, and even when we feel like we've got a good handle on a book, I'm talking about a short book, like something like Jonah. You know, four chapters, not hard, read it quickly. You get a pretty good sense of what Jonah's about. You might even have a really nice paraphrase, a sentence or two, paragraph if you're, uh, you know, a little more um, into that sort of thing, uh, you know, 250-page book if you're a professor. Nevertheless, whatever the case, you could have a sense of Jonah, and uh, that's good for you. But guess what? Jonah is still Jonah. Jonah still lives its little four-chaptered form in the Bible and waits for us to reread it again. And when we do, we might find some new things, see some new things that we never saw before. So those are my four things on reading the Bible. How about we go to the next one? So I'm back to my screen share, I hope. Hope it's working. And now number two should be on the board with four on reading bad parts, quote unquote, bad parts. It seems to me that if we are to tend to scripture, or attend to scripture faithfully and fruitfully, we have to come to terms with not just the good parts, the pretty little parts, the hallmark greeting card parts of the Bible, the Bible promise pack parts of the Bible, but it's more disturbing and difficult parts, the parts that we may not even like very much, that sometimes we might studiously avoid. Uh, a quote here that is helpful to me as I think about this, Franz Kafka said in a letter one time, we don't need books that make us happy, he said. 
you know, books that make us happy, we could if need be write ourselves. They're not hard to write, he says. <laughs> but what we need, he says, are books that come upon us like ill fortune, uh, like the death of someone we love better than ourselves, like suicide that distress us, books that distress and trouble us deeply, he says. A book must be, he says, an ice axe to break the sea frozen inside us. <laughs> oh my goodness, he wrote that when he was 21. I don't know about you, but I think he has a future. I think Kafka has some potential. I mean, it, we, it's too early to tell, but he might actually have a future in the literary world. Think about that, a book of ill fortune that comes upon us and distresses us deeply, uh, like the death of someone we love better than ourselves. A book must be an ice axe to break the sea frozen inside of us. I would like to suggest that these bad parts of scripture that we often so studiously avoid are actually quite crucial for our souls and for breaking the ice axe frozen inside us. So here's four uh, that I want to lift up, but I'm going to stop my screen share so I can come back with you now. Um, so first, I want to begin with a non-biblical example and mention Flannery O'Connor's remarkable short story, Revelation. You may know Flannery O'Connor, you may not. She's known for her brutal, brutal stories that tells and showcase sort of the worst of humanity. And yet she said all of her stories, even when people didn't like them, uh, she realized people didn't like them always, but she was quite well known, nevertheless, that her stories were always about an aspect of grace operating on a character who didn't much like it. <laughs> She's uh, known for uh, her kind of what she called their Christ haunted world. Uh, so Revelation is a stunning little story. I must tell it in brief. Spoiler alert. Spoiler. You don't want to hear this part. You leave, leave the church at this point. Come back about one and a half minutes, two, two and a half minutes max. Revelation tells a short story of a uh, woman in the racist South, uh, really any racist part in America, uh, named Mrs. Turpin. She's in a um, hospital waiting room. Her husband needs to be seen for uh, his leg. And in the meantime, we are given access to Mrs. Turpin's uh, interior thoughts. She's a devout woman, of course she is, and just profoundly racist, of course she is. And she judges everybody um, of every sort, uh, not just different ethnic groups, which she does uh, with great um, brutality, but also um, anybody of different economic status. So uh, she is just mercilessly judgmental, but then flows into prayer to God and how thankful she is that God didn't make her like these other people of whatever sort, ethnic groups or socioeconomic classes. Well, the entire time she's waiting for her husband to be seen and judging everyone in the small waiting room, a young woman is glaring at her behind her college textbook. Turns out her name is Mary Grace, by the way, and she's reading a textbook called Human Development. Isn't that amazing? And she keeps staring and scowling at Mrs. Turpin, who's a bit, you know, put off by this. Doesn't she have any, you know, manners? Uh, so Mary Grace comes in for some judgment, too. Uh, finally, Mary Grace throws her textbook across the waiting room and hits Mrs. Turpin in the head, then jumps on Mrs. Turpin and starts choking her. 
It's a stunning, you know, what, what's happened? This is just all decorum is lost. People pull Mary Grace off of Mrs. Turpin and hold her down. And Mrs. Turpin looks at her, Flannery O'Connor writes, and says, you got something to say to me? And then O'Connor writes, and she waited as if for a revelation. And Mary Grace says to Mrs. Turpin, you go back to hell where you belong, you old warthog. <laughs> there you go. And then Mary Grace is taken off uh, in a stretcher to a hospital where she can uh, relax a little bit, uh, cool off. Mrs. Turpin goes home profoundly disturbed. But what's fascinating about the story is that Mrs. Turpin has heard Mary Grace and has heard Mary Grace's word to her as revelation. And so she starts having it out with God on the farm. Uh, she goes down to the pigsty, starts cleaning it out, and starts having a rather brutal one-on-one -on -one with God about how she could, in fact, be loved by God and also be a warthog from hell. This leads to a final scene in the short story, another revelation, if you will, and that's where suddenly Mrs. Turpin sees a highway up to heaven and everyone going up to heaven. And what do you know? All the people, groups, and socioeconomic classes, et cetera, that she doesn't like, that she's judged so harshly, they're all going up to heaven first. And last, last of all, comes her group. And then it says, and even their virtues were being burned away. Wow, what a story worth reading, even though I gave you the, uh, the synopsis and summary right then. It's a, it's a stunning little story because the revelation that's going on is at least threefold, isn't it? One is the revelation Mary Grace gives Mrs. Turpin, that she is a warthog from hell and should go back there where she belongs. The second revelation is the one that Mrs. Turpin gets of the highway to heaven. There's a third revelation though, isn't there? And that is the revelation of Mrs. Turpin's interior mind that Flannery O'Connor gives us. And in that third one, wow, suddenly we become a bit like Mrs. Turpin herself because we're judging her. We're judging her for her judging. So it's a remarkable story on all sorts of levels. I mention it though, because for me and my purposes right now, the key thing is that Mrs. Turpin hears a word that she is not prepared to hear, that she is a warthog from hell, no less. And that's where she belongs and should go back there. And she hears it immediately as God's address to her. She doesn't think Mary Grace is crazy, and they, uh, even though the medical professionals evidently do. She hears Mary Grace's word as God's addressed her. And that's why she prays to God about it. That's, a, that's, that's the kind of dynamic that I would sort of suggest, or I'm trying to suggest with us reading the bad parts of scripture. They may in fact be crucial for our souls. They may in fact be revelation. They are in fact revelation, according to Christian theology, insofar as they're now part of Christian scripture. My three brief examples to round off these four are the book of Jonah where, for instance, the sailors, or even better, let's say the Ninevites, the Ninevites hear Jonah's half-baked sermon. Five Hebrew words is all he gets out of his mouth. They're very obscure or at least, you know, ambiguous. Forty days yet Nineveh overturned. 
it's a ridiculous sermon. There's no three points there. There's no poem. There's no movie clip. Uh, you know, we don't even know if Jonah had a cool tattoo. You know, five Hebrew words, ambiguous words, and the Ninevites, they know exactly what to do. They know what to wear. They know how to go without food and water. In fact, they make everybody do it. Little Fido and, you know, you know Miss Kitty, they all are going without food and drink. They're all fasting and praying and repenting to God who hears and also changes God's plan of destruction to instead uh, forego that. That's a remarkable turn of events. And that's what the bad stuff is supposed to do, right? To make a difference, to hear that bad word, that judgmental word of scripture and not, not deflect it, but embrace it to wonder how it might be revelation to me. So Jonah's an example. Another example here uh, in my four points here is David. Not just uh, David at its, at its best, but David at, its, at, at his worst with Uriah and Bathsheba. You remember the story. I won't belabor it. I'll just say two vignettes about it. One, Nathan comes in, right? You are that man. Yeah, there's all kinds of things David could do. He's king after all. He's already taken someone else's wife. He's already killed that person. Uh, he could easily just sort of disappear, Nathan, couldn't he? He could do any number. He could deny it. Um, who knows? He could lawyer up. I mean, right now, he could get the PR team going. He could send out some tweets. Uh, he could dissemble. You know, but he doesn't. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the first thing out of his mouth, according to 2 Samuel. Uh, Saul dissembles. David doesn't. He hears that, that word and he says, you know, I've sinned. Um, later, just immediately later, he learns that the consequences of this act uh, involve the death of this child. That's a harsh word, too. David could just give in. David could just say, say la vie, but David instead hears that word of address to him, that bad part, and tries to do something. He also fasts and goes without comfort and prays, begging for the boy's life. David is an example, like the Ninevites here, then of hearing this, this bad word, this difficult word, and being changed by it. Oh, there's more. If you're interested in the New Testament, I, I don't know much about it. I read it once in high school. It seemed kind of good, but, um, you know, <laughs> in my field, we call it the appendix. But if you're interested in the New Testament, there's, there's wonderful stories here, too. Think about Acts chapter 2 after Peter's sermon. They were cut to the heart, and they said, brothers and sisters, what then shall we do? Repent. Repent and believe the good news. There's more, but I should go on to my third four, because I got four fours, and so I need to keep going. So my fourth, third fourth, this is very confusing. It's like the fifth third bank. I never understood that. Um, the third four is this, the four on reading poetry, four on reading poetry. So if you're keeping track there at home in church, uh, poetic function, parallelism, imagery, metaphor, and episodicity, lyricism. You can see what I've done with the slashes. I've really gotten six things in for the price of four. That's, a, that's just a classic professor move. They teach you that the first day of professor class. They just say, look, this is how you 
you say I want to teach three things, but three things have four subpoints. So it's just it's easy. Um, but I'm just being transparent. So we got four things on reading poetry: poetic function, parallelism, imagery, metaphor, epicedicity, and lyricism. I wanted to uh, talk about poetry here for a moment because, in my mind, and this will come up momentarily, poetry is one of the great gifts the uh, Old Testament, in particular, gives us. And since I'm an Old Testament professor, I feel like I should represent that. Uh, and in fact, I think that poetry might be a better understanding of scripture as a whole and how it functions and how we might best attend to it faithfully and fruitfully more than story. Uh, this might sound crazy. It's very crazy around here in Duke. I don't know if you know anything about theology schools, but uh, Duke's a big place for story, narrative. And uh, I'm a little bit of a rebel around here, Maverick, Maverick, because I'm, I'm wanting to think more about the Bible as a poem or a sequence of poems than I am about a narrative anymore. Uh, and so the four on poetry are important. So let me just mention them because I think this will be useful to reading poetry anywhere you encounter it in the Bible. It, it, and then also uh, it might help us think a little bit about scripture as poetry. So first, poetic function. Poetic function is the way poetry calls attention to itself by its strange, elevated, dense, and yet spare use of language. Reading a poem is just not like reading a blog post, right? Or reading the New York Times or reading a novel. You know, getting through Isaiah or, um, you know, Jeremiah is going to take some work, a lot more work than getting through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, that's the poetic function. Um, my love is a red, red rose, you know? Uh, these, the, what? I got to think about that. I thought that her, my love was named Holly and she was from a small town outside of Boise, Idaho. Uh, that's my wife, Holly. But no, she is a red, red rose, newly sprung in June. You know, so, so uh, poetic function, it's a different kind of language, different use of language. It's going to take some time. Wendell Berry, the great poet and farmer said, uh, great poems uh, can neither be written nor read in distraction. That's, that's the poetic function in a nutshell. Parallelism is the second thing. This is a mechanical aspect of Hebrew poetry. It's the way two or three, very rarely more than that, uh, lines relate to each other. And they relate to each other in various ways. But, but they, they say something. They say something highly similar. They say something different, maybe drastically different. Or they sort of are dynamically related and move the thought along. And, there, and there's a million, billion iterations of this. Maybe not a billion, but uh, a number of them. Parallelism, though, is the way Hebrew poetry works mechanically. It's the kind of way that really a lot of Semitic poetry works. And even much English poetry. In fact, the Russian linguist Roman Jakobson thought parallelism was operative in all poetry. But in English poetry, it's especially uh, common when it occurs. That, that really goes back to Gerard Manley Hopkins and his love of biblical poetry and use of parallelism in his own material. In any event, parallelism is important, not just to sort of understand something about it. Um, you know, this, this is not just in, in the Psalms, but the wisdom literature, Job, Proverbs, all these traffic in poetic lines. But, oh, you just randomly pick out any psalm and, and 
think about uh, the parallelism. Uh, who can ascend the Lord's mountain? Who can stand in the holy sanctuary? That's just two lines kind of saying the same thing, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and, and all that is within it. Again, Psalm 24, that uh, is uh, parallelism at work. But the interesting thing about parallelism is that the two lines are meant to make a single predication about something. And I think that's helpful to know because uh, Carol Miles, one of my friends and former teachers, has uh, made a really interesting case in her dissertation that maybe we should think about the Testaments, old and new, being related in the kind of ways that the lines of Hebrew poetry are related. And that means a bunch of different ways. Sometimes the Testaments are two lines that say the same thing. Sometimes the Testaments are two lines that say something different. Sometimes the two Testaments say something that's just dynamic together that continues the thought or nuances or moves in some direction. But together, here's the key point, together they make a single predication. Isn't that a fascinating way to think about it? Uh, we often pit the Testaments against each other in uh, marked ways, even when we don't mean to, uh, if we don't mean to do it wrongly, we often do. And parallelism might help us think about the relationship of the Testaments at a, at a larger level of canon of scripture as a whole. All right, third and fourth things more quickly. Third, imagery and metaphor. Oh, imagery and metaphor, these, these exist in other types of literature too, of course. Think about science talking about black, holes. What is a black hole? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it's a metaphor. Yeah, pretty sure. Pretty sure it's a metaphor. Even science has to periodically traffic in the metaphorical. So image and metaphor are going to live dense lives in uh, poetry. More imagery, more metaphor in close proximity to one another. Uh, and that's partly because poets are talking about the most difficult things to talk about, right? Uh, and in the Bible, they use poetry for the most important types of discourse. Think about it. There's, uh, oh, well, the poetry of faith, the Psalms, prayer and praise and pain. Oh, yeah. Poetry of uh, profound suffering, Job. Poetry about death, Ecclesiastes. Uh, poetry about life, Proverbs. Um, poetry uh, about um, the word of the Lord, the prophets. Poetry is selected as the discourse of choice because these are hard things to say right. What could be harder to get right or to say right than God? Poetry, imagery, metaphor are necessary to do that kind of deep theological work. Finally, episodicity and lyricism is um, refers to the fact that uh, poetry in the Bible is really of the lyric variety. We have uh, in Western understandings of poetry, basically three main types. You have your epic poems, think about uh, Beowulf or the Iliad and the Odyssey. We have dramatic poems, think about uh, Shakespeare's uh, metered poetry and then think, oh my goodness, how would anybody write an entire play in metered verse? I guess that guy really was pretty good, Shakespeare. 
Uh, and then thirdly, lyric poems, which are much, much smaller. They're not, they don't have that kind of narrative stuff going on in epic poems. They, they don't have the dramatic things going on in dramatic poems. Instead, they're short, usually relatively brief. They can be included in an anthology without cutting any parts. That's important. But they really are snapshots, uh, lyrics. They, they're moments, they're episodes. They can't tell us everything because they are too short. But what they can tell us is often remarkable. You can succumb to the image in a lyric poem, at least for a time being, and it can change your world. Here's two examples. Uh, a poem by Mitch Roberson called Every Day We Are Dancers that I often use in class. I won't read it and I don't have it completely memorized anyway. But uh, he describes life as a dance that begins, he says, and this is his line, with the somewhat lewd Macarena that each of us performs in the shower. I don't know if you Macarena dance, I, you might know that, I don't. You're Lutheran, so I'm a Methodist. I've never heard of this. I had to look it up in a dictionary. Uh, then it moves on, he says, to the, fun, to the, to the uh, ever with our ever absorbent partner, the towel, doing the twist with the towel, and then the funky chicken of stepping into clothes and all the rest. And even outside, he says, under the disco ball of the sun, no one uh, is uh, a wallflower, but everybody dances in some sort of way. It's a wonderful little poem. It's just an image. It's just a metaphor. Mitch Roberson knows that sun is a star, that it's not a disco ball, but it's a powerful image. Suddenly life is a dance. Every day we are dancers, she says, and then everything, everything is seen through the lens of the dance. Uh, closer to the biblical account, Psalm 1, right? Uh, there are two ways, two ways, you know, happy is the one who does this, who doesn't do this, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. They are like a tree planted by streams of water. Uh, everything they do, they prosper. Not so the wicked. Two, two ways, but, but really only one way. It's so obvious, the one way, not the two ways. Um, and that image is powerful. Someone is powerful. If you give into it, you think, yeah, there really are only two ways. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, Psalm 1-6, but the way of the wicked will perish. But it's just an episode. It's just an image, right? And it can be challenged. In everything they do, they prosper. Well, hmm, I'm not sure about that. Why not? Well, because Psalm 3 and then 6 and 22 and 13, all the lament psalms come along and it shows that sometimes the righteous don't always just prosper. Sometimes it's the wicked to do that. In any event, imagery and uh, metaphor, but also episodicity and lyricism are important. This suggests to me at the biblical level, at the canonical level, that what we're going to find in certain parts of scripture are lyric episodes that capture our imaginations and that are just right at some times. And then at other times, a different episode, a different lyric will be quite right. They can't, these episodes by themselves, tell us everything. Instead, we need the full sweep of them, the entire sequence, as it were, of poems. So a lyric sequence of poems so that we have all the episodes we need for just the right time. All right, my fourth and final four. I'm there, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Four Old Testament gifts, honesty, poetry, 
theology speaking of the first member and ecclesiology speaking of the church. So in my introductory classes here at Duke Divinity School, I, uh, as I say, often do these four things. And uh, I lead off uh, in the first day of class with four problems um, that I can think of off sort of off the top of my head that Christians struggle with and, um, and that we will kind of address here and there uh, along the way as we take this class together for a full academic year, things like the problem of, of, of law, priestly law in particular, um, the problem of uh, the wrath of God, uh, the problem of violence, and the problem of cursing one's enemies in the same the imprecatory psalms, the cursing psalms, which could be a stand-in for, for any sort of ethic that you find troubling or disturbing in the Old Testament. But it's not just problems. There's gifts that the Old Testament offers, serious gifts. And these are among those four that I've lifted up. So first, honesty. The Bible, the Old Testament in particular, is honest and brutally so. Brutally so. In fact, its honesty is sometimes more than we can handle. Certainly, Job's honesty was more than his friends could handle, wasn't it? And the Psalms come every bit as close to Job uh, as that character does to the very brink of blasphemy, preserving, as Ellen Davis says, the First Amendment of the faithful, you know, the, the ability of have free speech before God. The, the Bible is an honest book, particularly in the Old Testament. The New Testament's honest too, but it's short. It's like, you know what, a week and a half. It took a long time to get that Old Testament. We have a thousand years or so or more of Israel's life. And Israel's candid about that life. It's candid about its sin and it's candid about its suffering. And sometimes it's candid also about its violence, but violence that's been done to it. And as a result, sometimes the violence it wishes it itself could do in response. Um, so this sin, suffering, violence, these are, these are tropes of honesty in the Old Testament. And some people don't like that kind of honesty, uh, but that kind of honesty is what gets us from sin to forgiveness, from, from suffering to healing, from violence to recovery. That, that's my firm belief that the, the facilitator of those moves is precisely honesty. And that's what Israel gives us. It's easy as readers now, especially if we are uh, into uh, the uh, defensive uh, defense mechanism known as uh, projection, uh, thanks to Freud, it's easy for us to think that, oh, Israel had so many failings, so many sins, etc. Uh, yeah, that's uh, only because we know that only because Israel was kind enough to tell us about it, kind enough to confess, uh, charitable enough to share, uh, confessing its sins, as it were, uh, uh, willing not to dissemble, but to own up to the great sin at the mountain with the golden calf, or, or that Israel's most famous king, guilty of adultery and murder, and so on and so forth. So honesty, honesty is, is a crucial thing. And it's sad that so much of our Christian lives aren't honest like that. Second gift is poetry. I've already tried to hit on poetry, so I don't need to... Uh, to say much about it, but I will quote Garrison Keillor, extra credit. Do I get any extra credit for quoting uh, Garrison Keillor? Uh, he says uh, in his collection, Good Poems, poetry matters because 
poems give us a truer account than we're used to getting. There's a deep connection between poetry and honesty. Mary Oliver says, this is the rules to poetry. Uh, pay attention, be astonished, tell someone about it, talk about it. So honesty, poetry, the, the, there, there's a deep connection here. And poetry is one of the gifts that the Old Testament gives us. Almost the third, maybe more, of the Old Testament is poetic. Not nearly that much poetry in the New Testament. Uh, in the New Testament, it lives mostly in the book of Revelation, which is, interestingly enough, uh, the, probably the most dependent book in the New Testament on the Old Testament. Third thing, theology, uh, particularly the first member. It's often thought traditionally that the Old Testament is especially important witness to the first member of the triune God. Um, and in my own thinking about the Old Testament and the New Testament and their relationships, I think that the Trinitarian approach is a very important one. Um, if we're truly Trinitarian, um, if nothing else, this will give you some things to talk about on your way to choir practice. Uh, if we're truly Trinitarian, it means we don't have to worry so much as we sometimes do about finding Jesus in the Old Testament or thinking the Old Testament points to Jesus or witnesses to Jesus in some way. It's fine. It's just perfectly enough if it witnesses to God, the God whom Christians now know to be triune, because wherever one member of the Trinity is, according to St. Augustine, all members of the Trinity are. Where one acts, the others act as well. The three act inseparably. Um, so uh, the Trinity is an important way to go in thinking about the Testaments um, rather than focusing exclusively on the second member to the neglect of the first and the third. But we get what we do get, at least in the, in the Old Testament, is unmistakable witness to that first member, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a signal gift of the Old Testament. Fourth and finally, ecclesiology. The Obviously, the church is mentioned in the New Testament in important ways, already in Matthew, right? Uh, before there really is a church where we get uh, comments about the church and St. Peter's important role. But it's easy for whatever reason in modern North America to read the New Testament as primarily an individualistic affair. Wrongly, of course, to be sure, but nevertheless a common mistake. The Old Testament, though, you just can't get away from the corporate nature of the people of God there in the Old Testament. And that corporate nature that in Hebrew, the kahal uh, or edah of the, of the people of Israel, this is often translated in the Greek um, as the ecclesia, the church. Um, and therefore the church uh, is, is a common notion from the New Testament already in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We get a sense of the corporate nature that we're in it together that we have to get through this stuff together and that everybody sort of matters. There's only one Moses, only one David. Yeah, they're important, but equally important is the congregation of Israel, the, the community of faith, the ecclesia of Israel, as well as the ecclesia belatedly of the church. I wanna read a, a paragraph of something. I, my time is really up paragraph, a final paragraph of something I wrote in Christianity Today a year or so back on these four um, gifts of the Old Testament. And uh, it's just the final paragraph where I try to uh, tie these little four gifts together. So here's the final paragraph. Imagine 
for a moment, if you will, a Christianity marked not by cover-up and denial, but by honesty. That's the first gift, right? A Christianity that spoke of God humbly and artfully, poetically, because the divine mystery dwells beyond all language. That's the second gift. Imagine a Christianity attuned to the theology of the three-in-one, one in mercy and judgment so as to free the world of sin and injustice. That's the third gift. A Christianity unified as the corporate people of God, ransomed from every tribe and language and people and nation. The fourth gift. That would be a Christianity adorned with the gifts the Old Testament provides. Here's my last line. Then we're only going to get to those four gifts if we go back to the first four and read it. So thanks so much for letting me join you. I hope you have a great night and a great series. And I think, Stephanie, I'm three minutes and 32 seconds over. So I hope that's not too bad. Appreciate it, y'all. Blessings be on all of you. I don't think he can hear the applause, but I'll communicate to him that it was there <laughs> later on. Uh, thank you all so much uh, for attending. Thank you, Professor Strawn, for joining us over Zoom. Just a couple of reminders uh, to everyone. There will be table talks in room 203 in uh, a gathering space available, uh, available for conversation and gathering. There is an elevator available, or else there are stairs on either end, uh, so everyone should be able to gain access there. Uh, as a reminder, next week, uh, you'll actually get a chance to hear from me. I'll be sharing a little bit about uh, why Scripture matters under this broader theme of, uh, of tending to Scripture. And now, friends, I hope that you will go in peace and serve the Lord. Amen. Thank you all for being here. <laughs>